Good morning and welcome to another episode of From Sunday to Monday, the podcast of River Oaks Presbyterian Church. Thank you for tuning in. Today we are still continuing our look at the gospel and race. Specifically, we will be having Dan Hahn talk to us a little bit about the racial history of the city of Tulsa and about the uh, very intentional cover-up of that history to keep people from learning from it. Uh, I think you'll be uh, shocked and amazed. I think this will be really helpful for you. Please, uh, again, send us your questions, info at riverrokestulsa.com. Thank you. Hello. Um, today, tonight, excuse me, um, I'll be talking a little bit about um, kind of what that history that, that Jonathan talked a lot about um, looked look like in Tulsa. Uh, since 2011, when I found out about the events that happened in Tulsa in 1921, um, I have taught it a lot um, to, to children and adults, and there's, there's not really any better way to get to know a lot about something or become familiar with something quite like teaching it, having it scrutinized in front of a group of 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, and um, college students and other people, and so... Um, I've been able to, to do a lot of research over what happened in Tulsa back then because as, as with other major historical institutions in our country, evangelicalism has been, um, you know, as, as Jonathan kind of talked about, as the overture um, stresses, um, guilty of, of, of some of these things in the past. And in Tulsa in 1921, it was definitely the case. Um, I'm going to pass around a handout um, that has some information about this and Hopefully you'll take it with you because it does have some information for further study. So anybody know, like, just really quick, like, what happened in Tulsa in the sustenance of 
of Tulsans at this time. This is what the kids were growing up on. This was what was being um, talked about at the, at the dinner table. The Tribune was the evening paper, the Tulsa World was the morning paper. So at night, this, this is what the, the, the children were going to bed with, this, with these things on their heads. And um, it was very, there was a religious aspect to it. Um, it was very much um, nationwide, not just in Tulsa. It was a conversation of white purity versus an um, animalistic and very dangerous um, problem of freed slaves. Is, is this is Reconstruction through the Jim Crow era, it was, it was this problem. And um, Tulsans um, very swiftly um, put an end to that problem in Tulsa with, with what happened in 1921. And for me, it was my process of learning about it has been so much of wondering how I never learned about it. I didn't find out about it until 2011. And I grew up in this part of the world, and for me that was very disorienting. I talked about that a little bit last week, because um, uh, what historians have called it, um, John Pope Franklin and some others that have been uh, instrumental in studying this, have called it a conspiracy of silence, where journalists and teachers and lots of people from the, the 30s all the way up until the 80s were threatened and, and made to not talk about it. And, and you can see one... One of the things on the handout, you can see an article of the front page of the Tribune the day, uh, the day it happened that says U.S. moves to cut armaments. In the, in the bottom right-hand corner, you can see an editorial that's been ripped out, and this is in the actual Tulsa Tribune archives, the official ones, where something has been ripped away, and what has been ripped away is an editorial that um, lots of eyewitnesses on both sides of the aisle, black and white, some of them actually feeling guilty about what happened, have corroborated that this editorial existed, and it was by the same guy that is on your handout, that um, when Dick Rowland, who was the person accused of assaulting this woman, whose name was Sarah Page, was in jail, um, they published on the front page for everybody to read that evening an editorial uh, calling for his lynching, and that was what sparked the violence. So imagine looking down at that at 5 o'clock, and then um, days later it being ripped out, and there have been massive efforts to try to recover it and, and things like that and others have, have been happening in the 94 years since this happened. I guess it's more than that now, 95, this will be the 96th anniversary. Um, and they, uh, n nobody's been able to come forward because there's still this culture of silence about this. And one of my students' projects, pretty much the final for this unit every year, was just for them to go out and initiate conversation with somebody about this. It wasn't a paper, it wasn't a PowerPoint, it wasn't a research project. It was go out with the information that you have, and, and in a we talk about it, conversations because uh, the, the texters aren't super good at having conversations with people. Um, but. Uh, those conversations were, were, were mixed, and, and a lot of what they got from people was, uh, we, don't, we, don't even, we don't talk about that. That's not something that, that, that we talk about. And um, that's been something that is kind of, I feel like, landmarked in my life, going so long not knowing about it. And um, as a Christian, looking back and, and thinking about, you know, trying to connect the dots between then and now. How much did that shape our Christian conscience? Those people, you know, our great-great-grandparents now being raised on those things. 
and then raised in us. And obviously, cycles are broken and, and, and hearts are changed and, and those things happen, but as Overture 43 shows, um, there's, there's repentance that needs to take place. And um, for me, I know in my life, somebody who is a professional sinner, um, <laughs> it's just, as, as a lot of us are, repentance is, a, is never a merit badge that you get and you move on to the next thing. Repentance is something that is constant. It's something that takes, you know, the, the image of daily taking up your cross and, and following Christ and falling down and, and, and doing a horrible job all the time and never meeting that standard but always feeling the grace that comes with it. And that those historical sins that Overture 43 talks about seem to suggest that we are still in repentance mode and we still have the work of, of repentance to do for what happened, even though none of us were alive at all, um, but none of the people that are responsible physically for what happened in Tulsa and the scores of other places around the country during that time period are here. So um, it seems like uh, the, the folks that are here and the folks that are trying to follow Christ have to take up that yoke of repentance for, the, for those things. And that's a, that's a very um, controversial topic in our current culture is, you know, um, I didn't own slaves. I didn't do any of these things. I didn't, we need to focus on the future and the here and now. And a lot of that focusing on the future is great and it's true. And we have to look forward. But there are still these historical sins that are, that are informing our present. And it's absolutely not... The word guilt gets thrown around a lot, and it's really not a good word. Um, it's more—it's more like responsibility. It's—it's it's more of a if we don't, nobody will. And it, you know, it's kind of what I talked about last week. Is as Christians who have been given so much, and our whole, our whole hope and worldview is wrapped up in getting something that we never deserved. That if we got what we deserved, we would be in super bad shape. Um, as Christians, I feel like it's incumbent upon us to, to take up that yoke of, of repentance for the historical sins, not out of a guilt thing, but out of that community of we were all born into one race, and we were, we, we were meant, and these things were never meant to happen. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's an author that um, Keller talks about in his um, The Journey Through Lent series, his name, I don't know how to say his last name, Edward Dockett's maybe? It's D-O-C-X. <laughs> it's a difficult name. Wrote an essay in 2011 called Postmodernism is Dead. And he talks about a really fascinating idea because, you know, we think that academia and the postmodern context boasts a lot about having, you know, uh, they've got their equity merit badge. And, and uh, I've, I've been guilty of falling into that category too and acting like that. But this is what he says. If we deprivilege all positions, we can assert no position. We cannot therefore participate in society or the collective. And so, in effect... An aggressive postmodernism becomes, in the real world, indistinguishable from an odd species of inert conservatism. This idea that there is no truth, there's nothing absolute, actually shackles you to do nothing, right? And uh, another a favorite book of mine is Pedagogy of the Press, which is an educational book by a Brazilian psychologist named Paulo Freire. And he talks about this too. He says, we are, we are with the oppressed only when we stop regarding the oppressed as an abstract category and see them as people. When we stop making pious, sentimental, and individualistic gestures and decide to risk acts of love. 
True solidarity is only found in the plentitude of this act of love. To affirm that men and women are persons and as persons should be free, and yet to do nothing tangible to make this affirmation a reality is a farce. And so he's, he's talking about in schools, which is my area that, um, that I focus on the most, and that, that idea that to do nothing tangible, because we talk about that a lot. We love everybody. We're all one. I would never, I don't hate anybody. We, would, we, we talk about that a lot, and that's great. But to do nothing tangible makes those, those words seem, seem disingenuous at, at the best and at the worst. It's, it, it makes them seem untrue or like we, like we don't mean them. And um, that's been my, my path um, since 2011. Learning about what happened in Tulsa is what can I do in a tangible sense? And it's got to be, and this is something I'm so guilty of, is feeling like it's just a Facebook status or feeling like it's, it's rhetorical. And I've been guilty in, in, my own, uh, in my own journey of being, of like co-opting what I see as oppression for other people, you know, to look cool, right? To look like I've got it figured out and everybody should, you know, to read what I say, you know, right? Um, and I've been, I've been some, some specific people in, in, in this church and some of them in this room have been instrumental in me saying that that is not, that that's not the way, that those things aren't tangible. And obviously using social media and those things is, is a great way, um, but it still, it still isn't tangible. The tangibility of it is kind of what Jonathan was talking about, is that getting out of our seats and having the conversations and leaning in with people and forgetting the politics of it and, and doing those things that we do on all, all of the arms of the fall, of our fallen nature, we do this. And this, this racial stuff that constantly keeps flaring up in our culture is, is just another arm of of our fallen nature. And um, we talk a lot about, you know, in marriage we have to do this, and you have to be sacrificial and all of those things, and uh, taking care of our bodies we have to do this, and in, in, our, in our prideful things we have to do this, and the way we speak. But there's this reluctance in racial situations. We go, no, 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 that was the past, right? And, and we're very quick to do tangible things in all the other areas where the fall affects us. But in this area, for some reason, it seems so much more um, personal to a lot of people and a lot more difficult. And um, I do think that, I mean personally, um, that there isn't going to be a political party that's going to fix it. Neither one of the parties has any reason, and there are only two, right? There's not another one. <laughs> well, yeah, like there is, there's only two. Uh, right, Neither one of them have the answer. They don't, and, and, they, and both of them have blood all over their hands, right? One party sets up systems of oppression and the other party comes along and provides them with funding and infrastructure and, and, and the liberal thinking people try to act like they've got it figured out, which only makes it worse. And, and this, this back and forth take pla takes place because this problem that is a heart problem that is part of the fall is not going to be fixed by some arbitrary and archaic man-made thing that is really set up to keep us all fighting each other and, and not to ever find a solution to anything because no one gets elected if solutions exist. Um, and our tangible work of repentance, which we can, we can probably just, I feel like in my life I can insert repentance for reconciliation. It's, it's, it's really what, what it's about. That tangible work has to be within these covenant relationships that we all have with each other, 
which is something that I am still um, like a kindergartner in figuring out how to do. Um, and uh, it's hard. It's really hard. But, um, you know, the, to be very, very cliche, the hardest things are only possible with, uh, with the gospel. The hardest thing in the world is, is, is facing what we deserve and not getting it. And,